Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. 2 Corinthians, chapter 1. Today we're going to give an overview of the book of 2 Corinthians. And while you're finding 2 Corinthians, chapter 1, here's the key concept today. Speak up in defense of the gospel. Speak up in defense of the gospel. Now, I, I want you to notice the title of today's sermon. The title is Paul in First Person. And the reason that that's the title is because in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks more about himself than any of the other letters that he writes. Paul in 2 Corinthians gives a passionate defense for the gospel, but also a passionate defense for his own calling and his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. As such, we know that 2 Corinthians is an emotional letter. It's picked up in the way that it's written, in the words that he writes. Paul's other letters, in, in many ways, kind of read like well-thought-out sermons. Point and then sub-point and then sub-sub-point, you know, all making a logical journey towards the truth. But here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is almost frenzied in the way that he talks. He, he'll, he'll bring up something and then he'll let it go and then he'll forget that he meant to say something about that and he brings it up again. You can almost imagine Paul pacing the floor, dictating this letter to his secretary because that's the way he wrote the letters. He dictated them to, to a secretary and, and just kind of doing so in great emotion. It's disorganized. There's just points just kind of all just jumbling on the floor as, he, as his mind thinks through the issues he wants to bring to the Corinthians. But there is one theme that runs through the entire letter, and that is his heartbreak over the fact that the Corinthians are being influenced by gossip and slander against him and his ministry. You see, Paul founded the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey, the years 50 to 52 AD. Now it's four or five years later than that. And Paul has left Ephesus. He's in his third missionary journey as he writes this. And he's just had to flee Ephesus because of the riot that broke out. He, he literally ran for his life. He's crossed over into Greece, northern Greece, and he's making his way south. In other words, as he writes Second Corinthians, he's on his way to Corinth. But he wants to send these thoughts ahead of him so that they receive this letter before he gets there. Because what has happened in between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is that false teachers have shown up in Corinth and they are teaching a message other than the gospel. And wrapped up in that, they are gossiping about Paul. They are criticizing Paul. They are, you know, talking against him and his ministry. And some are believing that. And they are critical of the Apostle Paul. Evidently, in the years in between, in between his um, ministry there and the writing of these epistles, in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul actually made a quick trip back to Corinth to kind of respond to these critics and, and try to, try to uh, settle some of these issues. In chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, he refers to that as his painful visit because it was a visit that was filled with confrontation and anger the, the book of Acts doesn't even uh, mention that visit in its chronology, but Paul refers to it here. And now he's on his way for his third visit to Corinth, and he does not want to repeat of that last encounter. And so he sends them uh, this letter. And the le in the letter, he's seeking to establish and reestablish his credentials as an apostle of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to ask the question historically, was this letter successful? 
Did it actually cause the people to turn their hearts more towards Him and towards the gospel? And as we read the book of Acts, the answer is yes. Because in Acts chapter 20, we have the account of Paul on this third journey coming back to Corinth. And we read there that he stayed in Corinth three months. And so there was a level of acceptance there. We believe that during his ministry in Corinth, this third time, he actually wrote the book of Romans. And there's no indicator in the book of Romans that Paul was undergoing any strife while he was writing the letter. So God did use this letter to change the hearts of many, at least. But Paul doesn't know that as he writes this letter. He doesn't know that's going to be the outcome. And so he begins by defending the credibility of his ministry. And he does so by pointing out the fact that I have suffered for the gospel. I have suffered. Read with me, starting in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He says, I want you to understand that, that I believe so much in what I'm t speaking that, that I'm suffering for this gospel message. We suffered in Asia. Now, Asia was the Roman word for what we call Turkey, okay? And he, we know that he's just fled Turkey. Ephesus is in Turkey. He's fled that because of a riot was threatening his life. But there were many times in which his life was threatened. And when Paul talks about his persecutions and his suffering for the gospel, interestingly enough, he always talks about it in terms of praise. He doesn't resent having to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Paul knows some things about difficulty for the sake of the faith that we need to understand. One thing he knows is this. He knows that when you suffer for Christ, it reveals whose side you're on. Because I'm on the side of Jesus. I am part of the body of Jesus. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. In other words, he's saying there is a solidarity between Jesus and his people. There is a connectedness between Jesus and his people. And when we suffer for the cause of Christ, Jesus feels that and he returns comfort our way. Now, Paul knows about that connection because he was once on the other side. He was once the persecutor. Remember that? And he was chasing Christians who had fled Jerusalem and were going into Syria and Damascus. And while he was on the way to go and arrest those Christians, Jesus met him on the road. And what did Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? Is that what he said? Actually, no. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus is connected to his people. When you persecute a believer in Jesus Christ, you are persecuting Christ himself. He feels the suffering. He's feeling suffering of what's going on over in, under control of ISIS right now. People are suffering for the faith. And Paul says, it shows people whose side you're on. And Jesus will return comfort there when you suffer. He's connected to you. He also knows that hardships bring us to the proper place of trusting God, not ourselves. Look at verse 10. He said, speaking of God, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us again. On Him we have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. On Him we set our hope. We don't set our hope on our ability to talk ourselves out of any problems we get into. 
We do not set our hope on our ability to make such good plans that we will never have problems at all. In fact, Paul recognizes that the real work begins when you're out on that limb of faith and you need God to show up. The real work begins when this is a God thing or or it's nothing. And Paul has over and over again seen God come through. So I can depend on him because it's his power that matters, not my power. And Paul knows that suffering equips us for service. Look at verse 4, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Everything that you go through in life is redeemable. The stuff that you experience in life, God can turn around in blessing to somebody else if you let him. That's the, the wonder of our God. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, well, you know what? If it's all the same to you, I'd just like to skip that part. If I don't get to minister to other people, that's okay because I'd rather not have the pain. But here's where that is short-sighted. You live in a fallen world. Pain is going to come your way. Nobody skates through this life without experiencing it. Everybody has something that we go through in this broken system called planet Earth right now and this society in which we live in. The, The blessing and the promise for believers is this. That pain can be redeemed and you can use that to bless somebody else and there is joy in the blessing. So Paul recognizes that suffering for Jesus, that's, that's part of the thing. It shows whose I am and he wants to, to give credentials to his ministry. And he goes on to talk about his plans. You see, now at the end of chapter uh, 1, we are reminded that when evidently when Paul left Corinth after that second painful visit, he promised he'd, he'd return. But the time has passed for that return. He changed his plans. And what the critics in Corinth are saying is, you see, Paul can't be trusted. He says one thing, he does another. He doesn't doesn't live up to his word. But Paul says, listen, God changes my plans. I'm not at my own disposal. I'm at the disposal of God. And he convinced me that for me to return to you quickly would be painful and hard. You had some work to do. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1. He goes, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. And right there, we have a principle that we should lift out of that passage. And that is tied to speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love, it's about what you say. It's about how you say it. But it's also about when you say it. Timing matters. And the Apostle Paul realized that if I, if I was to run back to you quickly without you doing any of the corrective measures, any of the healing that I, that I asked you to do, we'd just be right back at that painful situation. So God kept me and allowed His, His Spirit to work in you and me. But now the time is right. Now I'm coming. So at the end of uh, chapter 1, as we go into chapter 2, Paul begins to compare himself side by side with the false teachers that are his critics in the city of Corinth. And as you get to verse 11, we see that these false teachers, Paul calls them peddlers of their message. Their motivation is money. He says in verse 17 of chapter 2, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Paul has always been careful not to take financial advantage of the people that he's ministering to and with, but not these guys. They're peddlers of the Word of God. And secondly, he says, and, and they are displaying their letters of reference from some bigwig someplace. 
But we don't need a letter of reference because you are our letter. Read chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You ourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. These men are coming and the, the, the argument goes something like this. Well, where's the credentials of Paul? He wasn't one of the disciples. He wasn't with Jesus. Who is he representing? Where, where is his diploma? But look, we, we have a letter of reference here. Interesting to ask the question, who that letter of reference was from? And the, and the answer probably is since in chapter 11, he refers to the false teacher as Hebrews. It, it could very well be that this is a representative of the group who just didn't buy into the full gospel. They believed that you needed to follow the Jewish law first to become a Jew before you can be, you know, see the Messiah. And that current of anti-gospel teaching runs all the way through Paul's ministry. So probably somebody back in Jerusalem who still believes that has written the letter, sent it with these men kind of un to undermine what Paul is doing as he teaches about the grace of God. Well, these are our credentials. What, what credentials does Paul have? And Paul says, you are my credential. When I was with you, God used me through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring you to Christ. You are transformed people. You're, what's written in your heart is my letter of reference. You know that God worked. He's bringing that memory back. And then he goes away from speaking about the messenger to speaking about the message in chapter 3, verse 6. He says, and what I'm proclaiming to you is not the old, but it's the new covenant. Verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I'm preaching a new covenant, a covenant that's not in, 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 on paper and ink, a covenant in your heart. Paul is saying, what I'm doing is the fulfillment of what the prophet Jeremiah saw hundreds of years ago when he prophesied, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The covenant in paper and pen, that externally written covenant, can only accuse. But when the covenant of grace is written on your heart, it gives life and freedom and hope. And that's what I'm preaching, says Paul, not the, the old way. And this message that, that I'm preaching is entrusted to me, and I declare it to you. But not in any sense of power, not in any sense of lording it over to you with, with my credentials or ability or anything else, but rather I, I bring it to you as if I am just a jar of clay. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Whenever there's comparison, whenever there's envy, whenever there's strife, the person begins to be the issue. The external begins to be the issue. And Paul says, you know, it's not about the teacher. It's not about the, the servant. It's about the power of God. Ordinariness, weakness, being nothing special in terms of talent and abilities that does not disqualify you from being used of God, just like he's using me, Paul is saying. Now, this is so anti what we hear in our culture. In our culture, we hear, well, those who can persuade, those who can convince are the tall and the handsome and the beautiful and the dashing, those with stylish clothes and fancy cars. Those are the ones you want on your team so they can convince others. And Jesus comes along and says, well, I have the, the treasure for all eternity. And you know what I put it in? I put it in a jar of clay. That's the everyday dish. It was fragile. It broke easily. It wasn't anything special to look at. 
because it's not about the jar. It's about what's in the jar. Ordinariness is not a liability. Ordinariness is an asset for God's glory and gospel to be seen. Isn't that good news? Look around you. We are abundantly ordinary. <laughs> Celebrate it. Because <laughs> that's who God uses. And then he says, but one thing I do have, I have a citizenship in heaven. And in chapter 5, he reminds them that actually as I serve on the earth today, I'm an ambassador of that other kingdom. I represent the truth from that other kingdom. And it's really not about me. It's about what the kingdom, what the king in that kingdom is saying. And then as he rounds out this first section of the book, chapter 6 and 7, Paul becomes abundantly vulnerable because his heart is breaking that the people that he knows are rejecting his ministry. See, don't think of Paul as a hard-hearted, gruff kind of guy. I mean, sometimes his letters come off as very, you know, to the point, matter-of-fact, all business all the time. But he wasn't like that in real life. I don't think he could possibly have been like that. Because in every city where he travels, he leaves a group of friends behind. He was relational, and, and, and he's vulnerable in his emotions. And in chapter 7, verse 2, he just puts it all on the line. He goes, make room in your hearts for me. Make room in your hearts for us. Because his heart is breaking that they're turning away. Now, we've quickly moved over the first seven chapters of, of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, but one of the things about this book that's kind of unique is that all along the way, Paul just drops these gems of truth. He's got so much that he's concerned about for these people that he doesn't make huge arguments. He just kind of makes statements that they need to, you know, get hold of. And, and, uh, and we've seen a couple of them, but some we've skipped over. One of them is suffering is meant to be turned around and used as blessing for others. Another one is the power of the gospel is in a frail vessel. We are the jars of clay that God, uh, God invests his gospel in so that he can get the glory. Another one is heaven is for real. Heaven is for real. Verse uh, chapter 4, he says, we have a weight of glory waiting for us that outweighs all of the sufferings we go through here. In chapter 5, he makes the point, believers are new creations in Christ Jesus. And the way he says it, he doesn't say, listen, you should be new. He says, God sees you as new. You are remade by the power of God. In chapter 6, he says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And in the context, we understand that what he's really saying is, do not be yoked together with those false teachers. Those, those unbelievers who are say, spreading false message and false gospel, don't be in a dependent relationship with them because they will lead you astray. The yoke was what the oxen would wear plowing the fields and they were dependent on each other in that situation. Paul says, don't, don't be like that with unbelievers. And we can extend that principle to any mutually dependent relationship. We often, of course, apply it to marriage. For a Christian to enter into a marriage with a non-Christian, you're being yoked together in a mutually dependent relationship with an unbeliever. It's exactly against what Paul is saying here. But it also applies in any kind of partnership, any kind of business where you are mutually dependent. And Paul says you're not going to be on the same wavelength. There's danger there, so be careful. And then as he starts chapter 8 through chapter 9, the midsection of the book, he gets to some very practical matters. And the first thing he hits is generosity matters to God. Now, what's interesting to me, just as a, you know, from a psychological point of view, you've been in relationships before, of course, and sometimes there's tension. And when there's tension, don't you seek to avoid the things that are tough? 
just let's talk about nice things for a while until we all settle down. But even though there's tension with this relationship in this church, Paul does not, let, does not back down about the fact that generosity matters. You're called to be generous persons. He's taking the collection, remember, for the needy in Jerusalem. And he lays down a principle that has been translated to us into this simple sentence. That principle is, you can't outgive God. Sometimes that's used as a cliche, but it is not a cliche. It is absolutely true. And the, and the principle comes from these verses in chapter 9, verse 6. Paul is making the case you cannot outgive God. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul says, cast the seed of your generosity widely and watch what God will do. He loves it when you do that. And then in the rest of the book, chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, he closes off his argument by returning to his own defense. He returns to the idea that he is so hurt that they have turned their back on him and that they're listening to these new teachers. In chapter 11, verse 5, he, he's embarrassed by doing this because he's almost like he thinks he's boasting, but he knows he has to say this stuff in order to defend the gospel. Chapter 11, verse 5, he says, I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. <laughs> I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Paul says, you know, I might not be the best preacher in the world, but I know what I'm talking about. And the, the issue is, are you going to listen to someone who's motivated by falsehood or truth? And he makes a pure point of it over in chapter 11, verse 14. He says, what these guys are telling you are lies, and the reason they're doing it is because they come from the father of lies. Verse 14, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. He says, you know, anybody who speaks falsehood instead of the truth is speaking the lie of Satan. And they are doing the bidding of Satan. But then in chapter 12, he goes on to say, but I do the bidding of heaven. In fact, I have been there. He talks about an experience. He goes, I don't know if it was a vision or if I really was there, but I saw the throne room of God. And my mind, I can't even comprehend what I saw, really. I can't put it into words to you what I saw. But, but I know I saw indescribable things in heaven and I experienced that glory and that's the realm from which I'm speaking to you. And God knew that this was a wonderful experience in my life and in order that I not become proud because of that experience, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. Chapter 12, verse 7. The thorn in the flesh was given so that Paul would be reminded that humility is what God wants to see in his children. Maybe God knew he had a tendency towards pride in his own experiences. And we don't even know what the thorn in the flesh really was. We know it was some physical kind of ailment that Paul received. We know, I, I think, put it this way, I think that it was something obvious that people would ask about it because the whole point of it was to keep him humble. He needed to explain it. This, I'm sorry, I have this thing, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And we know also that Paul was so upset by it that three times, he says, three times I asked Jesus to, to take this away. He felt it was hindering his ministry. But Jesus says three times, no, no, my grace is sufficient for you. 
Here's what you need to know about the prayers we prayed, the prayers we prayed up here, the prayers you pray for yourself. When God gives an answer, that answer is a means towards God, God's ends in your life, okay? And sometimes the answer is going to be no because he knows that what you're asking for is not the best for you. God knew that if Paul became proud and, his, and, and in a state of pride was serving Jesus, making it all about him, his ministry would be ruined. And Paul was too, too important an instrument in the hands of God. So he goes, I'm going to keep that thorn. It's not going to be comfortable for you, but it's going to be used in a way that gives me glory, and that's what you're here to do. And so the answer was no. And then in chapter 13, we see Paul's final greetings to them. He asks them, really kind of, really pointedly, examine yourself, guys. See if you're actually the real deal. Because I know I'm the real deal. And if you're listening to these false teachers, you're going down the wrong path. And then the very end, chapter 13, verse 11, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. See, what happens when you start to bicker and when you start to be gossip about leaders in the church and, and we're starting to pit one person against another, what happens is divisions start to come into the church family. And Paul knows that when divisions come into the church family and people are taking sides and talking about other people, the gospel ministry stops cold. Paul says, you've got to come together. Be restored, not only to the true gospel, but to one another and to me. And then you'll be vessels that God will use. So we, we ex come away from 2 Corinthians and we know that we can count it true that the faith journey that we're on together is about God's power being seen, not ours. We can count it true that we can dare to ask God for great things for the ministry and, and His work. And even though we are just ordinary people, He shows up. And when He shows up, that's when work of eternal worth gets done. And we can count it true that the secret to Christian living is understanding that when I'm weak, I am strong in Jesus. I can find strength in Him. And that is true of you if you know Him.